Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Brandon. Oh, Brandon's not connected yet. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. Oh. Hey, Dan. Hello. Brandon. Hello. Hey. No password necessary. Yeah. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, there. Hey, Robert. Hey, hey, hey. And um, Jeremy, we can't see you. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to start my video. Cool. There and we go. We're only waiting on one more person. Uh, Michael Kelly is supposed to be joining us as well, but we can go ahead and get started without him. Um, oh, and here he is. Uh, so when he's connected, we can go ahead and say hi to Michael as well. Um, there we go. Hey, Michael. Hello. Cool. So it's awesome having you guys here. And we have two new folks with us as well. So that's exciting. So today, Hello. <laughs> so today we're here to discuss Conan the Conqueror. Also, since this is our biggest turnout yet for a patron book club, we decided to release this patron book club recording and Hoy's patron book club recording as actual episodes. So what will happen is the episode with the guest will be released first. Then after that, this group's episode will be released. And then after that, Hoy's group's episode will be released. Oh, nice. Yeah. So everybody in the world gets to listen to our conversations. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, Dan, which edition of Conan the Conqueror are you working with? So I've got a 1983 Sphere one, um, which is unaccountably book four. And it's got the, the Frank Rosetta cover. And kind of this really strange armor where his like chest and shoulders are, are, are bare. And I think it must have been inspired by this Gallic hero. <laughs> <laughs> is that Obelix? It, it's Obelix, exactly. Who <laughs> was discussed with Jason Mendes. So, yeah, <laughs> nice bit of continuity there. And also for those listening, um, Dan is also wearing a beautiful Appendix N Book Club t-shirt, which is available for sale if you want to swing by our website. Uh, thanks, Dan, for uh, representing. <laughs> Does anybody sure. else have the same sphere uh, paperback that Dan has? I've got the 74 sphere, which um, I probably would have bought in about 76 or 77. So that's very fragile now. I've not been using that one to read. Uh, for reading, I've got the Gallants, uh, the Conan Chronicles, Volume 2, mm. which I think came out 2000 and something, early 2000s, maybe. Nice. What are you working with, Brandon? Uh, I got the good old uh, Ace Duke. Number nine, which I like. Cool. We're probably not the only one who has this. I think I picked this up at Gen Con. Does anybody else have Ace Number 9? Brandon, you're the only one rocking an Ace Number 9. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also got the Frazetta cover. Uh, Jonathan, what are you working with? Well, I actually, I do have the Ace number nine, but I was also reading this one here with uh, Carl Edward Wagner, editor. Oh, it's got the Hour of the Dragon as the title. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure who did the art, though. So. Looks like Ken, Ken Kelly, perhaps. I think that might be Ken Kelly. Okay. I'm not sure. Very cool. What are you working with, Jeremy? I looked everywhere for my copy of Bloody Crown of Conan, and I couldn't find it. I found every Conan book, every Delray I own, except for Bloody Crown of Conan. So that means that once we're done, I'll go into my room, and there it is. <laughs> uh, so I, I listened to Mark Nelson's excellent um, rendition on LibriVox, 
except for a couple chapters, uh, and I went to Project Gutenberg for that. Very cool. And Michael, what are you working with? I have a Scribe subscription, so audiobook as well. Cool. I was not expecting to go last and actually have a different answer than everybody else. I've got the uh, Lancer paperback. Oh. This is the oh. 1967 Lancer paperback with a Frank Frazetta cover. Um, it's the third printing. And of course, because I'm a monster, I've been highlighting in it. Um, <gasps> <laughs> well, considering that's probably in three separate sections and that covers just a slipcase now. Normally, that's true with Lancer. But for some reason, this one is a sturdy one. Huh. Why? But Amazing. Yes, my experience with Lancer is the exact same yeah. thing. Um, and in addition to that, while reading it, I was also listening to the um, Audible audiobook from, um, I was listening to The Hour of the Dragon in the Bloody Crown of Conan collection on Audible, read by Todd McLaren. Um, and that was also helpful because then I could see the differences between like The Hour of the Dragon version and the Elspreg de Camp edited Conan the Conqueror version, yeah, um, yeah. which is surprisingly, there's almost no changes. Mm. But, um, but anyway, so cool. We've talked about which edition of the book we're working with. Um, Hoy is now in charge of choosing our Hygaxian word of the day. So if you guys want to share some nominations, I can go ahead and share those with Hoy before he picks an official one. Does anybody have a nomination they would like to share? Uh, I had, there was one word that I didn't know in here that's quite early on, and it's Dupon, J-U-P-O-N which is a sleeveless jacket worn over armor. So I guess kind of like a surcoat or something like that. Nice. Anybody else? I have um, Incubus, which you have the normal D&D definition, but there's he uses it in this one as one that opposes or burdens like a nightmare. Mm. And that's on chapter 7, page 66 of mine. But yeah. Very cool. Anyone else? Uh, my nomination oh, is... So, sorry, Jeff, I've got one as well. Sorry. Go for uh, it. So, so mine's kind of an interesting one. So I've got Bergenet, which I think in your Lancer edition is Helmet, because there's, there's a couple of words that were changed, according to some blogger, um, which is a helmet, which has a, a skull and then a, a, a peak at the front and then a kind of comb over the top oh, yeah. um, that was apparently used by... Um, pikemen and lancers, um, but but Howard has it um, being worn by archers instead, okay. um, and and I think they were kind of from the 16th, 17th century. So it, it it's part of his magpie thing of having things from you know like kind of the, so much of of, of history. Uh, I had not necessarily a Gygaxian word, but. Um, uh, uh, Howard uses um, flesh as a verb, which I liked. It was very <laughs> evocative. I think there's, um, and one of Conan's bodyguards has his belt turned into a snake. It says it's, it fleshed its fangs into his hand. I thought that was very like visceral. Nice. Cool. I like that. And my nomination is Nader, which is on page 47 of my edition. And it says, um, it was the pollen of the black lotus, which creates death-like sleep and monstrous dreams. And he knew that only the grisly wizards of the black ring, which is the nadir of evil, 
voluntarily seek the scarlet nightmares of the Black Lotus to revive their necromantic powers. And Nader means the lowest point in the fortunes of a person or organization, as in they had reached the Nader of their sufferings. <laughs> so that was my choice. Um, so cool. I, I put these down. I will share these with Hoy and we'll see which one he ends up going with. So, Robert, what are your thoughts on Conan the Conqueror? Uh, overall, very enjoyable. It's, um, I think it's interesting. There's always this discussion with sword and sorcery stories that they should only be short stories and never novels, which is not always borne out. But I think in any case, in this story, it almost it is a novel, but it's almost composed of lots of little short stories. It's very episodic. We move from one scene or one location to another. He meets someone, something happens, then we're on to the, the next one. Um, and I think Howard keeps the pace going all the way through it. It never really lets up. In fact, my criticism of it might be that the pace is a bit too fast at times. I would have liked to have seen some bits fleshed out a little bit more, uh, particularly like Akavisha and, and some of the, the other characters, perhaps. Mm. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Uh, I I enjoy it. Big surprise. Um, I don't think it's the best Conan story. I I think it's second tier story, maybe. Um, I think it suffers a bit um, from having Zaltatun uh, not menacing Conan as, as much after Conan escapes and whatnot. Um, and yeah, it is very episodic. And it and it's really great in that you get to see swaths of the Hyborian kingdoms, the Hyborian continent that he never really covered much in his short stories. Um, that's very neat too. All in all, I liked it. I mean, it was a pretty good, you know, it was definitely a first novel. Uh, that was the first time Howard ever wrote it at length, I believe. Uh, he was trying to get published in England, if I remember right. And, um, all in all, I enjoyed revisiting it. It uh, actually very inspirational in a lot of ways, thinking for gaming and whatnot, thinking about it. Perfect. Michael, what were your thoughts? I don't really have anything new uh, that's already been said. It seems like a Hyperborean Hyper yeah, tour, for sure. And that's not bad. I enjoyed that. And it's just like he's always one step behind the MacGuffin in the middle. It's just... I gotta go to the next place. Gotta go to the next place. But it, it was definitely enjoyable. Yeah, that's awesome, Jonathan. I I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought just the whole overview of getting to see everything and everyone, revisiting a little bit of the past. As he says, oh, "I used to be a pirate, or I used to be a thief." Was great. Um, my only criticism is that he didn't face the big bad sorcerer at the end. He let someone else take care of it and kind of one of that personal um, conflict there. Good point. Dan. So I, I love um, his short stories. I, I'm not sure he really had the chops to write a novel about a king. I think it's having read the worm Ouroboros recently, you can see a lot of influence from that in, in what Howard is writing and, and, and some lift and shift. Um, and I think it works a lot better when Conan becomes an adventurer, which is over halfway through the story. Um, and obviously there's like 
a lot of greatest hits, some of which works really well. Um, and the, the pyramid scene is just amazing. Um, there's an awful lot of bump, being bumped on the head and co- coincidental rescues, which I think in a you know in a short story works a bit better than happening over and over again. But but it's it's only that the, the civilized Conan sort of lacked the instincts that the barbarian Conan had. And I don't know if like he had the hairs on the back of his neck shaved or something. Um, so yeah, so he couldn't go. <laughs> but also, I love that. I guess because how it's actually quite young when he wrote it that you got this ancient king of 46 years but but what he does have is all of these friends and allies which is something very different about conan as the king yeah brandon yeah i i agree i i, I think it um it uh, it was like being yeah you know, it was great fun you know it was like being on a runaway train but you're on the runaway train with conan so you know it's like you know it's going to be exhilarating and and you're going to be okay and conan's probably going to be but sure, like uh, everyone's been saying, it's kind of, I, I felt a little like it was, uh, we were going on like a, a slideshow tour of the Frazetta covers. It's like, there's the great ape and there's the giant snake. and There's Conan as a thief and there's Conan as a mercenary. There's Conan as a king, you know, and you're just kind of like, oh, there, yep, mm-hmm, there we are. There we are. But overall, I just, I had a great time. You know, I enjoyed reading it and uh, couldn't wait to turn the page. I like that. I feel like that's a, a good observation. And it seems like this is almost kind of like a greatest hits collection in novel form. Yeah. Um, um, I, and I did like the episodic feel of it. I feel like um, some of these kind of episodic novels are more successful than others. Like when we were reading um, 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 Hero's Journey. I thought, or Hyro's Journey. In Hyro's Journey, it's super episodic, but it's always driving the story forward. But sometimes with Burroughs, especially in some of the kind of later Pellucidar books, or in some of the um, farmer maker of universes books, some of the episodic stuff just kind of feels like we're constantly being pulled away from the story um, instead of it driving the story forward. And I feel like Conan the Conqueror did a really good job of giving us lots of episodic moments, but it was, I feel like it was always still kind of driving us toward uh, Stygia and toward our big climax. You know, there's a reason for that episodism. Basically, Howard Howard had a chance to sell a novel to England. Um, he had to work quick, so he did what Raymond Chandler uh, called cannibalizing his old earlier works. That way, he didn't have to plot out a brand new story for this novel. Um, obviously, he didn't take scenes wholesale from like i don't know scarlet citadel or um oh i can't of course i can't think of what other stories he heavily cannibalized from um or like phoenix on the sword like that uh but it saved him time in plotting it and also i don't know how widely read weird tales was in england no one was going to notice this um you know it's fair game and again it was his first attempt at a novel does anybody Uh, know if weird tales was even distributed in the UK or would you have had to have gotten it from the U S I'm guessing you would have had to order it from the U S I've not heard of it being over here at all, but I, I stand to be corrected on that. Yeah. I heard uh, a lot of pulp magazines actually got over to, um, to England during the war because they used the ballast in ships. And I, I think they were just given out or sold or something like that for a that makes sense. pennies on the pound, but you know, but overall, I would say, although this is not my favorite Conan story, this is my favorite Conan paperback from this era. 
because some of my favorite Conan stories are also in paperback collections with really terrible pastiches or just like super bad racist uh, Conan stories that are hard to read. So this is the first one where it's like, oh, this entire book is enjoyable, which is um, pretty exciting and fun for me. Um, but it's it's interesting to hear about the copies of Weird Tales that maybe made it to the UK, because one thing I kept thinking about is it seems like there was a lot of proto Lord of the Rings stuff in here. There's like a ring of power. There's like the black, like the black writers. There's like a magic item that when other people see it, they really want to steal it. So I was curious and I was doing a little bit of Googling, but it looks like this book was published in the UK in 54, which is also when Lord of the Rings was published. Um, but it was available in hardback in the US in 1950. And then, of course, in the 30s, it was available in Weird Tales. And apparently, Tolkien acknowledges that he has read some Conan and did enjoy some of the stories. Yeah. Um, it's unclear whether he read this or not. And even if the timing of that could have worked to have inspired Lord of the Rings or not. But I, I noticed a lot of stuff that felt proto Lord of the Rings. Well, I, I think it's very questy if I can use that word for a Conan story, which is normally, uh, well, sword and sorcery typically is a, a, a single event, a, a theft from a temple or that kind of that kind of thing. So this is set up more as a quest, which I guess is a parallel with Lord of the Rings. And I think one nice thing that Howard does in this, he gets a good balance between the action and the world building as well. Uh, we are getting this whistle tour of, of all these different countries. Um, and he reminds me a little bit of Clark Ashton Smith in that way. You can well build within a few lines. Mm. Whereas if it was Tolkien, we'd have three pages perhaps of law, uh, <laughs> but maybe shouldn't go into that. But uh, so I, I think he does get that nice balance, but I, I can see this as more of a fantasy novel, almost than a sword and sorcery, perhaps in some ways. Uh, well, I was seeing it as um, I, I felt that it was like Howard was, looking to the Arthurian myth as his, sort of his structure. You know, we have a golden age and a king who is then, you know, laid low by sorcery. <laughs> he has to go on a grail quest to restore his kingdom. And then there's a climactic battle of, you know, where good overcomes evil. Um, Conan doesn't die and go, you know, to Avalon, but nevertheless, it's Jeremy. Yeah, um, I'm just saying... Um... A prominent Howard star scholar, I'm probably mispronouncing his name because I can't speak French, uh, Patrice Laurent. He, he said he's pretty certain that, that was he was deliberately tailoring Hour of the Dragon to the British audience, to the English audience, with uh, basically the quest narrative, the return of the king, um, having Zenobia as something of a Guinevere figure that will finally restore truly heal the heal the um the kingdom and also the difference between early in the story winter ravaging the land um basically sort of fisher king symbolism conan's disposed winter is scouring the world at least aquilonia ruins and whatnot and then the last few chapters spring returns the king returns the earth blossoms again the, the um because the the rightful king is back so Again, uh, at least one scholar thinks Howard is deliberately tailoring this novel for his audience. What I um, think is really interesting about that is um, on page 120 of my version, Conan says, let others dream imperial dreams. I but wish to hold what is mine. I have no desire to rule an empire welded together by blood and fire. 
It's one thing to seize a throne with the aid of subjects and rule them with their consent. It's another to subjugate a foreign realm and rule it by fear. So it's interesting that Conan is expressing this very clear kind of anti-colonialist sentiment if at the same time he's also trying to woo the UK in the 1930s. Um, Although having said that, Tolkien was not a fan of colonialism uh, from from what I gather. So, you know, it's... um, I'm not sure if Howard would have known that particularly, or it would probably probably not. But um, yeah, it is it is an interesting thing, and in in many ways, also Conan is not of a, a pure bloodline, is he? Like the Tolkien characters, he's not one of the chosen people. He's, he's a pure uh, Sumerian. Yeah, which is a pure, which means he's also pure Atlantean. Well, I guess there is yeah. that. That's true. But, That's but no, he's not. Yeah, he's not. He's not a. Uh, Hints, people saying or uh, saying that he's descended directly from Cole. That's just Bannon and whatnot. Uh, yeah, but yo, know, he's not from Conan. Is Conan is a very American creation because in the other stories, like the Stardust, Scarlet Silver, and whatnot. I mean, he spits at. It's a very American sensibility. He spits at people who you know claim I have the right to rule because my father's father's father had the right yeah. to rule. Yeah, you know. Because basically, if you think about most nobility, they're descended from thugs, even kings. They're descended from thugs who were on the right side of a battle millennia ago, you know? And again, very American viewpoint, very American fantasy, at least in that that sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, Michael, is there like a a moment in the story that was um, like a really exciting or fun one for you? Was there a section of this book you really enjoyed? Good question. Um, a lot of the bits in the middle, I mean, it, it was starting to get a little tedious where he's almost able to grasp the the heart, but not able to, uh, and then he has to go do something else. Uh, but they, they were also very enjoyable little sections there. Um, you know, the, the kind of the puzzle box, uh, treasure chest, yeah. you know, that, and, uh, getting on the, the galley and causing a riot and becoming, the uh, captain again and the yeah the the section in stygia yeah very enjoyable moments there totally jonathan was there a moment that you particularly really enjoyed or that you maybe particularly didn't enjoy and kind of rubbed you the wrong way um yeah like michael was saying there's so many good moments in the book um one of the funniest moments i think is when he tripped in the curtains when he's Mm -hmm. going after the one of the bad kings there um I just thought it was funny that Conan, who's so cat-like in all his movements, just trips in some curtains. So I, <laughs> I was joking with my wife that makes uh, curtains Conan's nemesis or his weakness. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that also kind of builds on what Dan was saying earlier about how Conan just keeps getting bumped on the head. You know, it's like, <laughs> as a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the day, I just remember like there's so many episodes where Giles gets thrown against the wall and his head hits the wall and he passes out. And I'm like, this has had to have happened like 20 times. <laughs> this man has to have some like brain injury at this point. And <laughs> anyways, yes. how about you, Dan? Uh, for, for me, it was the, the cameo in the pyramid scene. And I, I, I love the way that, yeah, there's there some real mystery there. And he was making snap judgments about who to follow, where to hide, which door to go through. And, you know, and she you know, put a disguise on and all that sort of thing. And you know, and obviously leading up to to Akirasu, which for me was the best bit of the whole book. Yeah, that was very cool. And I also really liked how they used um, 
um, Conan being a foreigner and having to like hide in this like very kind of racially homogenous place. Um, it it kind of really kind of added to the the tension there as well because he's used to being in these kind of thriving port port cities where there's just a ton of diversity and kind of hide in with the crowd. And here he has to work really hard not to be noticed. Plus the vampire was just really cool too. Boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me your lips, strong man. <laughs> Brandon, do you have any highlights or lowlights you'd like to chat about? Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of a tangent of uh, what you were saying and Jonathan was saying was just, I thought it was hilarious that because of Conan's situation, like, he is um, supposed to be dead and he is a fugitive. Whenever one of his allies meeting him, they're constantly, it's very soap operatic. They're constantly like whisking him into a room <laughs> and then like looking both ways, silently shutting the door. There's like you say, lots of tapestries. There's lots of like skulking around, which is like, makes sense in the book, but this is Conan. <laughs> you know, like, and they're all like, listen, man, we just got to level with you. We can't be seen with you. I'm sorry. Um, I thought that was just like it was it was very of the novel right felt it was it was very nice little bit of um, stagecraft Robert I'd agree with Dan on the the pyramid scene was my favorite also so much packed into that but I also think the opening scene was very strong and people sometimes forget what a great horror writer Howard was We're, we're straight in with this sarcophagus black candles green flames moaning winds and as they start this ritual, there's something pressing on the door or the, the door is kind of rattling or bulging a little bit, which I thought was great. So I thought the the, the opening was was really strong as well. Yeah. I agree. I love um, that is the first things he says when he awakens is I was Zaltatoon. I am dead. Yeah, <laughs> and the mummy in the pyramid as well. So it says the same thing. Is it, it thotmetry or thotmetry or something? Uh, I am dead. <laughs> Let me show you out. <laughs> I may have been dead for thousands of years, but I will never forget the 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 layout of these halls. <laughs> Jeremy, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of scenes. I mean, it, it's perhaps not the best of novels, but the set pieces are magnificent. Um, I think prop, I think with Dan, I, I think probably the best one was the pyramid. Um, the entire, basically the entire sequence in, 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 in Kemi, perhaps, but definitely the period pyramid. But just want to point out one thing that I find very interesting. When he is uh, press ganged by the Argosians, and basically he turns to the, the, the ore slaves and says, who am I? They scream out Amra, and he basically, not even one chapter, not even for that, you can even argue he was never captured. He breaks loose, he frees, he continues on his quest. Edgar Rice Burroughs would have John Carter or his hero in a Barsoom novel imprisoned multiple times in a novel, perhaps for a chapter at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Brackett, Eric John Stark. I mean, people say, you know, Stark is dynamic and whatnot, and maybe it's because John Stark is more noirish than sword and sorcery. I can't rem- I can't count how many times John Stark, Eric John Stark, was captured in the Ginger Star trilogy. Yeah, you know, um, that's just such a big difference between Howard and a lot of contemporary adventure fantasy writers. And that Conan is always dynamic. If he's captured, it's brief. 
and serves a point. And even when he's captured, he gets loose. He may still be technically captured, like he's in the dungeons of um, the dungeons of um, uh, uh, in the Scarlet Citadel of the of the Wizard of the Scarlet Citadel, like that. But he's always moving. He's not passively waiting for something for the most part. Yeah, I think I'm I'm still so used to reading the Pellucidar stories that as soon as he was uh, captured by the slavers, I was like, well, here we go. We're going to be with these guys for 20 pages. And it, it, it that didn't happen at all. And that's just kind of what I'm used to. Yeah. And I forget who was saying that maybe the pace was a little too fast. I, maybe that was Robert. But um, but I I really enjoyed that. I'm glad we didn't get stuck with these in in these individual set pieces for too long. Like, yes, I think it would be cool to maybe have been able to further explore some of these things. But if we're gonna have all of them in the novel, I'd rather us just kind of meet these cool things, have these interesting moments, and then just kind of move on. I'm just gonna bring up one more thing. There was a uh, someone on RPG Net years ago read um read Conan the Conqueror, Hour of the Dragon. He wrote his comment. Conan, look down the slaves. What's my name? The slaves scream out, I am Ra. And all the Argosians go, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, the one thing that I did notice in the differences between the texts, I didn't didn't Google what um, Dan did and actually see what the exact differences were. The only one that I noticed, though, is uh, a change that I actually appreciated. Because at one point um, when Conan is uh, jailed in the dungeons, when um, uh, Zenobia helps him out, there's those black jailers, and he described their um, described them as grunting in their ape-like speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, de Camp changed it to grunting in their guttural speech, ah, um, which was, I think, a wise editorial choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, de Camp it did have his moments. Like, uh, I think the biggest one. Um, in the God in the Bowl, um, the scribe, when after the climax, he staggers out and starts laughing. Oh, the God has a long neck, a cursedly long neck. The camp changed that to, oh, the God has a long reach, a very long reach. And that's much better for that story. So, yeah. All right. So transitioning this over to a gaming conversation, I guess let's first start with um, the thing that you would most like to steal and have in a game of your own. And um, Rob, what do you got? Well, before I got into D&D, I was very much into tabletop wargaming. And we used to do a lot of especially Middle Earth fantasy battles. And I think for me, the main takeaway from this will be the tabletop side of things. And I like that Howard is quite detailed when he describes the armies. There's 5,000 of these and there's 8,000 of these. And the spearmen are in the middle and the archers are at the side, that kind of thing. Um, and actually over lockdown, I've been trying to get back into tabletop stuff. And I actually managed to source and find a copy of Royal Har- Armies of the Hyborian Age, which was a 1974 set of rules co-authored by uh, Lynn Carter. And obviously it's tailored specifically to, to battles like in the Hour of the Dragon and everything else. So in gaming terms, that would be my main takeaway, trying to perhaps recreate some of these battles. And in my experience, whenever we have these kind of old school rules for um, for these kind of big battles, it usually turns right back into miniatures wargaming. And um, I, I still haven't really been able to find a way to kind of sink my teeth into a, a rule system for something like that, where we're still focusing on the experience of being a character in that kind of bigger battle. 
Um, I haven't yeah. I, I haven't yet experienced that done super well. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but have you? I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's not so much. I think you're you're more, if anything, you're the the commander of the whole lot, and maybe you can have characters or heroes. I think they describe them in this. With you'll have uh, better abilities than other troops, but you're think yeah you're more the role of the overall commander rather than being uh, that guy there kind of thing. Yeah, it's a different experience. I think differently. Michael has a suggestion. Uh, I don't know how much you know about Matthew Colville, but uh, he has a warfare system. It's more for fifth edition D and D. Okay, but the you your characters are fighting like the the villains, generals, lieutenants, or whatever, while there's also your units fighting a battle. So you have like your normal D&D turn, and then you have like a, a more warfare-oriented turn as well. So it kind of blends both of those. I haven't actually done it, but I've you know read the rule set and whatnot. So That sounds like a really elegant way of approaching that. I like that. Um, and Michael, what do you want to steal? I... I would be curious to see how long you can stretch out getting the MacGuffin. <laughs> you like you, you have your players go to the next thing and they do something. Oh, sorry. Your princess is in another castle, essentially. And just see how long <laughs> before they want to murder the GM. Uh, that would be fun. <laughs> uh Oh, the heart of Armand moved again. <laughs> uh, Dan. Um, I, I think it's a, a kind of way of generating narrative hooks. The Asura cult, you know, who seek below the aspects of illusion, could be really useful as a way of of of, of, of generating um, ideas and hints in a, in some kind of complex <coughs> society. The the other thing is that this, of course, was directly so CB two. Conan Against Darkness was massively influenced by this. There's a lovely illustration of Akivasha in here, which I'll put up on the screen in a sec when someone else is speaking, and a massive um, pyramid section and, uh, and you know, I mean, pages of, of maps of the pyramid. Nice. Uh, Love it. Yeah, it's very nice. Jeremy, what are you stealing? Um, so much to steal. Any one of the cities, uh, Tarantia... Um, that's it. Uh, oh, I can't remember. The, the Argosian city, whose name I should know, but I can't remember. Um, Kemi, probably Kemi and the pyramid. Um, I never read it. Uh, but I mean, even just looking at it, its synopsis is obvious that Janelle Jacquez was inspired by Conan for Dark Tower. I have kickstarted it. Curious how much, um, uh, I'm curious how much, uh, Hour of the Dragon, Conan Conkner directly inspired um, Dark Tower, to be quite honest. But that pyramid's a great dungeon, and the vampirus, be great villain. It's interesting how uh, how things have changed over 80, 90 years, because Akivasha, she's beautiful, she's gorgeous, and Conan is absolutely terrified, horrified, disgusted by her. Now, vampire culture nowadays, she'd be the ideal vampire, you know? <laughs> ideal, ideal character, I guess. Uh, should be the protagonist of a vampire novel, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, just to jump in on that that point about Jeremy, that she she basically is armed with a charm spell, and all she wants to do is to seduce Conan, yeah. and and to make sure she has two hundred hit points. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> Brandon. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things. A, a simple one that I like is the is just using the horse's bait, the horse that um, Zenobia sets mm-hmm. up for Conan after the prison break, oh, and he goes, yeah. and there's a mercenary waiting in the periphery. Yeah, for a game that's just elegant, you know, get your. You know, it could be anything. It could be like you know a crying baby. It could be like two other characters having a fight, but just to get see if they can like you know pick up on it. Um, and then one other thing I was thinking of is uh, just more as an illustration of um, a rule set uh, when Conan is in the pyramid and he comes to the T intersection, he has to pick right or left. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great instance of where um, like the gumshoe rule system uh, would work well. Um, he does, you know, right or left, whatever choice he makes, you as the game master can have Conan like go down into the dungeon to encounter the vampire to kind of avoid the actual ritual where he would have been killed as Conan himself acknowledges, right? Um, and in Gumshoe, that's kind of the basis. You put the clues in front of the characters so that they encounter them. And he, you know, Conan doesn't make the right-hand turn instead and get slaughtered in the end of novel. Have you heard about Swords of the Serpentine? No, no, no. Oh, that's... Uh... Uh, that's a gum thing to write down. That's a gumshoe system coming out to the general public, I think, in October, meant for swords and sorcery. Oh, perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm 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 getting an, I'm getting a copy of it when it comes out. I'm curious about it. Jonathan, what are you gonna steal? Uh, one of the things I really liked is just how Conan has a different reputation depending on where he's at and who he's talking to. And I just think, I know, I, I need to do more of that in my games. It's just track people's reputation with certain factions or groups or whatever. And even the places he was going to, they had their own reputations where you need to go to this city if you want to sell your jewel for the best price and that things like that. So it's just, it just makes the whole world come alive. Just having these different ideas of different places and different people and, and all that. Yeah, and Conan is clearly somebody who's been, um, as a character, has been increasing in fame throughout the entire world as he's been going on these adventures and leveling up. And I and and then how that ends up playing out when people think that he's dead, and then when he's back, now people are running around saying like, "The king is alive! The king is alive!" It, it would be interesting to make fame or reputation a bigger deal in your games. I think that would be cool. Um, so then also, of course, the Conan stories are pretty instrumental in the shaping of the creation of D&D and fantasy role-playing games like uh, RuneQuest 2, I would imagine. Um, so I'm curious, does anybody have any observations about things that early gaming may have taken directly from these stories? Totally. I mean, I, when I was writing a, a, a list of like gaming things, I, I, I've got a long list of influences and actually not many of the inspirations because his necromantic encounter at the beginning is basically failing a constitution check um, against magic. The, the, in the next chapter, it's explicit that, that Conan would have resisted the magic that his double was, um, was influenced by. There's a kind of definition of chaotic evil um, that when he's fighting the grey ape, he does a mighty deed, a bit of DCC. Um, and also he he defines adventurers as a class of warriors, um, men who have not attained to the wealth and position of knighthood, who are hard-bitten fighters, dedicating their lives to war and adventure. You know, so it, it's just like thing after thing. It's amazing. 
Yeah. And I also just mentioned there that going just going back to the pyramid, the great fight between the 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 Khitan assassins with the staffs and the Stygian priests with the black hand. I mean, what a great little setup where uh, two of your enemies are fighting in, in, in such a inventive way as well. I think that that is something that will work great in a, in a game. Yeah. yeah. I also thought the ghouls seemed pretty oh, interesting and very yes. much like D&D ghouls, especially the way they were described appearance-wise. Um, ghouls, eaters of human flesh, um, they were strange, motionless, oh, <clears throat> yeah, strange, motionless gray being that squatted on its haunches and stared down at him with unblinking, soulless eyes. I feel like that describes most of the illustrations I've seen of D&D ghouls. Now, granted, well, these aren't undead and they don't have a paralyzing touch, but. They're, they're Lovecraft ghouls. There's okay. there's no other way to, they're straight from, I recently wrote an article on Lovecraft's ghouls and they're, they're a straight, uh, they're a switch over, but they're in the same kind of universe yeah. or the Cthulhu universe, as I called it. You oh know. yeah, they they pass back and forth. I mean, uh, Robert E. Howard he created the Serpent Men that Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft uh, used a lot. You know, I think he was yeah he was the first one to use Serpent Men. Also, Zeltatune like has kind of a stun spell, and then does that moment where he's like, "Hey, what's that around your waist?" Oh, it's my girdle. No, it's not. It's a snake. Ah! And then, like, the snake bites him, and, like, he actually dies from the poison of it. And I'm forgetting the name of the spell in Old School Dean. Phantasmal Force? Killer. What? Phantasmal Killer. Phantasmal Killer, yes. Um, that Old School D&D illusion spell where the illusion is actually deadly. Yeah, shades of I have, more, I have no more use for you. Kill yourself. Yeah. And wasn't it great in that scene where there's another squire or something stood there and you can imagine this guy is going like yes. that. And the, the, the guy goes, no, no, he's okay. He's all right. <laughs> I was very excited. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Brendan. I just got very excited reading all, all of the different, very specific weapons that Conan goes through. It really took me back to the, you know, the AD&D player's handbook, I guess, where they have the the, the weapons charts and I just pour over them and I'd be like, what's the difference between a falchion and a scimitar? And he has the poignard and the broadsword and the gatana at one point. I'm just like, oh, this is, this is what I was all about, is like categorizing and itemizing different weapons. Now, um, I'd love to hear what your guys' thoughts are about how you would make the, the magic system in this book work in kind of a D&D kind of style game. Um, and Michael and Jonathan, I'm especially interested in hearing from the two of you guys, if you guys have any insight on that. Well, I love the whole Black Lotus sleep um, that he had to do in order after he cast these big spells. It's like, well, I need to sleep for a few days to recover. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's the perfect time to to steal the heart of Aramon and all that. So, um other than that, I was actually surprised at how much magic there was in this story compared to the other short stories. And I loved also the, the hand of set, how it just stayed as a mark on you. So you knew that it was a bad guy who did it. So you had to go after him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like how in sword and sorcery in the world of Conan magic really takes a lot out of you. It really saps your energy. Whereas in kind of traditional Dungeons and Dragons, especially if you're a higher level wizard, you have all these spells that you can just cast each day with and without it having any effect on you. So it'd be kind of so 
I mean, why, why wouldn't you cast every spell that you can cast every day? There's no drawback to doing that other than some of the more powerful spells. If you're playing it, like really rules is written, do have material components that you might run out of. And some of them might have expensive material components, but still for the most part, a lot of spells don't, and you could just be casting them every single day to your, to your, to to your best advantage. Mm. But I like in sword and sorcery that there really is like a, a cost associated with the magic. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts? I'm more familiar with 5e, but uh, yeah, I totally agree, especially in 5e. Yeah, you can be slinging all kinds of spells as a wizard without really any consequences besides the spell slots. Yeah, you get get at-will spells in 5e as well. Yeah, cantrips, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it it is a mix. Like, there's very ritualistic spells in this, where you, you need the candles, you need, you know, the pentagram or whatever. And then there's also, yeah, you're just, you're casting Phantasmal Killer and getting the snake thing, but it does wear you out. So some kind of fatigue system or, or you know, encumbrance, um, what is it, like Mouse Fritter or other systems where you, if you cast a spell, you actually have to put like a fatigue kind of item in your inventory so you're your spells or your your general inventory gets filled up as you're casting spells and then you get encumbered and you slow down and, and whatnot so something along those lines would be interesting yeah and in sword and sorcery usually magic is slow it has a cost sometimes it can fail and you're also able to sacrifice others to also like strengthen the magic um, and I think the DCC magic system is probably the nearest thing we have to something like that. And especially if you house ruled it a little bit so that you have to maybe spell burn in order to cast spells. And for each, for each point you spell burn, it's going to take you around to cast the spell. So it slows it down, but also maybe instead of spell burning your own points, you can spell burn the points of a sacrificial victim. If you're an evil character of some sort, I guess that'd be chaotic in DCC. Um, I think that's probably the system where it works the best. But um, Dan, as our resident RuneQuest person, how can you make RuneQuest more sword and sorcery? That's interesting. I actually have my D&D hat on for, for, for this one. Because um, RuneQuest isn't that good on really, really powerful magic. You know, it's much more kind of tribal, quite basic magic. Um, and I mean, I think just to build on your, your point about, um, about blood, I mean, my understanding is that the, the the purpose of the the climactic battle was to generate the deluge of blood to to transfer transform the world and 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 turn it back and the the, the power of the magic in this is is enormous yeah. um and actually kind of a contradiction with the the, the scenario where where they, they say magic is limited to summoning illusion charming and death but not artillery mm. <laughs> Summoning. Where did you get that? So, so th- 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 this is from the the from the the, the CB one and CB two. These these two um, AD and D scenarios. So, oh, cool. Th- this one and and Conan Unchained with with our lovely lovely Schwarzenegger um, <laughs> illustrations or photos on on the front. But yeah, so, so the list was summoning, illusion, charming, and death, but I not artillery. That is really cool. I dig that. Although we did have an artillery spell because at one point Zaltitude summons like this glowing blue ball and throws it at Conan. And then Conan is like stunned and passes out. 
actually that was going by 2d20 rules that was an alchemical pr preparation that he had set forth because he had a uh a glass ball if I remember right and he's okay. done that before uh howard um there are glass spells so to speak but again they're alchemy and mm. it's not like uh it's not like a sorcerer in the highborn age can just summon meteor swarm okay um to There's wipe no out a whole, whole lot of people it's it, it's probably yeah you could consider it a fireball but it's something has to prepare ahead of time uh with careful alchemy at least that's um uh that's how 2d20 2d20 conan does it and you know looking at the looking at the stories they're right because um that trick is used in the Scarlet Citadel by the sorcerer in that at the climax of that story. He pulls out these shimmering glass balls filled with gas and he chucks his opponent and trying to keep him back. And and also, I think he has a, a ring dipped with poison at one yep. point as well, so he just touches Conan. So yep. sometimes the sorcery is, as, as Jeremy says there, um, and then you get a lot of that ritualistic magic as well. But then we also have other, other things like people in the Black Circle where Kerim Shah's heart gets pulled out. Mm. It's almost like a Darth Vader sort of yep. moment. Yeah. So it, it is a sort of mixture of things, but it seems to be either ritualistic uh, alchemy or uh, mesmerism, a form of mind power quite yeah. often as well, you see. And lots well, of summoning entities to help with those magics. Were you going to say something, Jonathan? Yeah. Also, I mean, he causes the big avalanche and was going to cause a big flood too and, and the fog and all that so oh that yeah that's legitimate sorcery um yeah. okay yeah. yeah yeah it just seems super powerful in, in a way too <laughs> oh, oh yeah i mean um i mean the hyborian age remember the per the, uh in mongoose d20 it's not a loaf it's not a low fantasy setting and that the magic is weak it's a rare magic setting where these really powerful magics you're you're not going to have the average hedge wizard or cunning man in the Hyborian era is not going to be able to do spells like bring down the walls of a valley. You know, you, there's not a 20th or 30th level wizard in every village like the like um, you know the stereotype of Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Know? Well, and now it's time to start wrapping up with our final thoughts. So, Jeremy, what are your final thoughts about Conan the Conqueror? Any kind of wrapping up thoughts or anything you wanted to chat about briefly that we didn't get a chance to? Um, I just want to bring up, and I've brought it up before, I like how Howard makes the Hyborian Age a living, breathing world in that um, despite what's going on with Conan, and it's a major event, um, the overthrowing of Conan, it's not the only thing going on. Um, like, uh, Thutmachis does, does not care about Aquilonia falling. He wants to control Stygia. He wants to overthrow Thothamon. And that's why he's after heart. Or I also like that Conan's not the only person who runs across weird things. Those black priests of death that Valerius had in his service. It's obvious Valerius saw a lot of strange, weird things in his wanderings, too. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I don't think I and either of Howard's big, con big contemporary sword and source writers do that i know with Moorcock, everything seems to revolve around the eternal champion you don't get the same sense that there are other factions in motion thing in motion in the young kingdoms whatever same thing with for and the gray mouser uh i mean lankmar is a living breathing city but 
we never see other factions going about their business, even in passing. It always devolves upon uh, Fafard and the Mouser running across these things, getting into trouble. They seem to be the only active participants in the weirdness in the, of the world. Uh, Brandon, final thoughts? Uh, well, yeah, I, I just sort of, I mean, kind of a corollary to what Jeremy was saying. It's the the sense of time passing uh, in this novel, I thought was, like he said, not common to a fantasy novel. I mean, we had like apparently baronies and, and dukedoms that became kingdoms. And now the kingdoms were becoming an, an empire. And that it kind of gave this sense of this is a, a living world that's actually progressing through history. And, you know, maybe Conan's a little more conservative. He just wants his own little piece of the pie. But, you know, new technology slash sorceries are going to be entering into the picture and the world is going to change. It's not going to uh, just be static. Um, and, uh, you know, although Howard's writing can sometimes be a little goofy, but it's, you know, it's always propelling forward. Sometimes it's just great. There's this one line I just loved so much. I wrote it down. Uh, it's Conan. He says, my enemies have killed me a hundred times by rumor. Yet here I sit, guzzling the wine of Kiros. <laughs> Great. Great. Nice. Jonathan? Um, you know, if I was going to pick one book as the best RPG campaign setting book, it would be this book mm. over any other RPG book. I mean, I think this gives you the best campaign, just gives you enough flavor that you could run a whole world on this. I love it. Michael? I this is honestly my first Conan that I've uh, well listened to. Um, but after this was finished, I immediately started uh, re- uh, listening to other Conan stories like immediately after. So it was enjoyable enough and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoy Conan now for sure. Oh, you've got some great stuff coming up for you then. Cause there are some really amazing <laughs> Conan stories out there. Um, um, Rob, final thoughts, and do you have a specific Conan story you'd like to recommend to Michael? Um, <laughs> Tower of the Elephant, best sword and sorcery story ever written, absolutely. So good. Um, and I think, yeah, Conan working with other people in this one is interesting and revisiting these places from his youth or his past wanderings and interacting with these other people. He gets a lot of help in this one, which isn't normally is a bit of a lone wolf kind of character. And just to echo what Jeremy said as well, other people are doing things. I'm thinking particularly of um, the character Tiberius, who leads a section of the army off into this trap. And Conan doesn't even know anything about that, but that's like a pivotal part of, of the battle. So, yeah, those those two things. Um, and it's interesting to speculate what Howard would have done. I think this is maybe one of the last Conan stories he wrote, second but last one perhaps how he would have developed Conan the King. Uh, perhaps we get a little bit of uh, a foresight there of what may have been if it had continued. And Rob, quick question for you. Can you imagine using the Call of Cthulhu rule set in Hyboria? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I think a big element of sword and sorcery, particularly with Howard, is Lovecraftian. I think it's almost a defining factor of sword and sorcery. Certainly horror, whether that's Lovecraftian or not, I guess is is open, but I think you have to have that horror element in there. Yeah. Dan, final thoughts or last observation or cool thing you want to highlight? Yeah, I just want to talk about that that um, trap that Tiberius um, leaves Valerius and his five thousand men. That that is a that's borrowed directly from Edison, 
and there's a scene in the worm oh. Ouroboros where 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 that happens but but two things one there is fantastic suspense in that scene because you don't know what's going to happen yeah. um and and secondly there's a twist because you actually do have the betrayal and and the payback um whereas in in Edison it, it, it's a successful counterattack um so yeah but but so I, I really enjoyed that uh, as a kind of insight into into how he was putting the story together and and his skill as a writer the last thing I'd like to mention is um, we haven't chatted too much about Zelada the Witch in this episode, mm. and I mm. really enjoyed Zelada the Witch. Yeah, and yeah. I think that moment would be a really fun moment to put into any kind of a campaign because the characters can see that there are these soldiers who are about to burn an old woman at the stake, and they can just walk on by, not worry about it, not get involved. Totally valid choice, or they can get involved either at the point where early on where they're trying to rest and maybe they want to rescue the witch. Then they now have like this, witch as like um, as, as some kind of an ally or also once the wolf shows up and starts tearing their throats out. And then he realizes, Oh, the, the, the characters realize, Oh, this actually is like a powerful, potentially dark witch. Maybe we should help the soldiers in this moment and then have them as allies. Cause really there's no like super clear answer who's evil mm-hmm. and who's not in this moment. And it's kind of up to your kind of, I guess, your characters and kind of how they feel about how they would handle a situation like that. But I think that that could be a fun thing to throw into a game and see what people do and see what kind of allies you get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to let you guys know about the poll that will drop when um, the episode drops as well. Um, You know, this this last one was um, um, Hoy did the theme of robots and I'm doing a cyberpunk theme. And do androids dream of electric sheep is theoretically could be on both of them. But if, if do androids dream of electric sheep win in the current poll that ends tomorrow, those listening, this poll ended weeks ago, but, um, but if that one ends up winning, I'll just put a different title on there. But right now I'm looking um, at the poll being between William Gibson's neuromancer, Richard Morgan's altered carbon Philip K. Dix do androids dream of electric sheep and George Alec Effinger's when gravity fails mm-hmm. as our options for that poll. If just a, just a suggestion, if um, the if androids dream um, of electric sheep fails, um, I mean, is picked picked uh, by Hoy's uh, by Hoy's poll. Think about putting some Bester in because a lot of people say Bester's proto cyberpunk either. Um, the a demolished man or the stars my destination perfect all right everybody well thank you so much for joining and i will see you guys next time around yeah. take care thank thanks, you guys all the best Cheers. bye thanks <laughs> bye